Hi, this is Nathan Johnson. We are counting down the top 10 most difficult sermons delivered by Eric Ludi. There are certain passages in Scripture that prove difficult for most pastors and teachers, and the book of 1 Corinthians is no exception. Paul's epistle often becomes divisive in the areas of liberty, law, marriage, prophecy, the woman's role within the church, head coverings, and speaking in tongues. What are we as believers to do with such passages? Coming in at the number nine position is a revealing study on 1 Corinthians, tackling these subjects and the key to unlocking and understanding the text. Now, please join Eric Ludi in this encore edition of a sermon, A Pastor's Dilemma. Now, compared to some of my epic titles, that's pretty boring. Uh, but I think as we go through this, you're going to realize that some of the most quotable scriptures in the Bible find themselves in 1 Corinthians. And a lot of your great standing points and your belief points are probably in 1 Corinthians. And yet 1 Corinthians, I've often called it the pastor's worst nightmare. If we could somehow just eliminate the book of 1 Corinthians out of the Bible, I tell you what, we, we deal with most of our doctrinal squabbles. They're just gone. They just vanish because no one ever brought them up. And yet that's not what God does. God sticks the book of 1 Corinthians in very purposely for a reason. And so we're going to go through this. Now, this message could have been a four-hour one very easily. And so that's the, one of the other reasons I'm thinking, I'm trying to shorten my messages. Why in the world am I tackling an entire book of the Bible all in one message? And so at one point in time, I had each chapter outlined with all the key verses to sort of make my point. I figured this isn't going to be slow. That was about you know, 15 pages of notes just in and of itself. So <laughs> cut that out. So we're going to go through this in the most simplistic way that I know as of right now to go through it, to try and make a point. I, there's a very specific thing that Paul is doing in this book, and yet most of us, throughout our upbringing in Christianity, have oftentimes missed it, and we've strangulated truths to the point where it's actually created division and contention amongst us, instead of seeing why Paul is actually writing what he's writing in 1 Corinthians. Paul, the tripping beam. I was trying to think of the tripping branch, the tripping post. I couldn't think of it. I was just thinking of like a log that's in the middle of a forest and you're like doing your morning run and you go flying over it. And when you trip over something, usually it doesn't look very good or very pretty afterwards. Paul is actually notated by Peter the Apostle to, that his writings are oftentimes complicated and difficult for people to grasp. So let's read that. 2 Peter 3, Paul's epistles, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Well, I have a hunch he might be talking about 1 Corinthians here. Just a hunch, though. In other words, there's something that Paul does in his writings, and many of you have stared at some of Paul's great writings, and you just sort of have that quizzical, furrowed brow, like, what in the world is he talking about? Well, by the way, as a pastor, it doesn't get that much easier. It's not because you are a pastor, suddenly it's like, oh, you look at every scripture and it's clear. You have to labor through these things. And Paul, more than anyone else I could mention, if you don't know his context, boy, you could very quickly miss his meaning. Is Paul confused? Now, I don't think Paul is confused. However, I'm going to at least lay the question out there because a lot of us could. If you just look through 1 Corinthians really quick, do a quick survey, You could wonder, all things are permissible to me, says Paul. All things are lawful for me. In other words, hey, I can do whatever I want. Hey, guys, remove from your midst the fornicator, for what he is doing is not permissible and lawful. Well, hey, Paul, if everything's permissible and lawful, then why are you saying something's not permissible and lawful? 
Is he confused? It's not a big deal to eat food sacrificed to idols. Hey, guys, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Uh, Paul, do not judge. Hey, guys, I judge your behavior even though I'm not with you. Uh, Paul, are you reading your own message here? Don't get married. Marriage is fine. (laughs) Prophecy is passing away. You should seek to prophesy. When a woman prophesies, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, and then a few verses later, three, three chapters later, don't let a woman speak. A woman ought to have her head covered. Well, then one of the most controversial <laughs> statements in the entire Bible. We have no such practice in the church. What? Huh? Speaking in tongues is empty and of no value. I speak in tongues more than you all. You ought to relate one unto the other in absolute purity. <clears throat> Greet each other with a holy kiss. What in the world are you doing to us, Paul? You should agree with one another. If you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Context, context, context. All in one book of the Bible. We have more tripping posts or beams or sticks, whatever we want to call it, than maybe any other book of the Bible. That's an arguable one because there's some other doozies out there. However, this one, I tell you what, it's just a snare. You step into it, even with a good intention. As a biblical student, you're like, you know what, I'm going to understand what Paul is saying here. And you step right into you know, just that snare and it pulls you up and you can easily miss the very point of what he's saying. So this is just the classic uh, way of, of saying how we handle context in the Bible. Every word must be interpreted in light of its sentence. Every sentence must be interpreted in light of its paragraph. And every paragraph must be interpreted in light of its chapter. Every chapter must be interpreted in light of the entire book. And every book, see the interesting thing about this is it's not just that you're taking a word inside of a sentence, inside of a paragraph, inside of a chapter, inside of a singular book, but this book is one of 66 books. And so when you are properly interpreting, you also need to weigh the fact that it's not just in that book that it needs to be properly handled, but in light of the 66. And every book must be interpreted in light of the entire Bible and in light of the nature of God as revealed throughout the text of Scripture. Corinth, the church splattered with controversy. Uh, Corinth is a messy, messy place. And anyone who is going to be the pastor of the church at Corinth has his work cut out for him. Remember the title of this one, A Pastor's Dilemma. Well, this isn't just Paul, Pastor Paul's dilemma. This is Pastor Eric's dilemma. This is any pastor's dilemma. First Corinthians, and how you handle First Corinthians is very, very important. Now, what you're gonna see is it's not just that I'm teaching you about how to handle First Corinthians or to how to, how to cha- have to handle the Corinthian church if you just happen to one day get the assignment. It's how to handle Christianity, how to handle the truth of the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. See, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is setting the stage for what we could say the context of his entire writing. Why did he pick up a pen and why did he write 1 Corinthians? Well, let's let him tell us instead of guessing at it. The author and the audience. So here we see the author, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What's interesting about this is if many of us would look at this, we would say, he must be writing to unbelievers because these guys are outrageously misbehaving. 
How could they be called Christians? He must not be writing to Christians. He's writing to the lost. No, he's not. He's actually writing to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of, our Je- of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So that's just important for you to know. He's writing to those of us that are Christians. He's writing to this church, and this church isn't healthy. I'm going to just prepare you for that. However, I don't know that we're that healthy either. Uh, and a lot of what Paul is saying here actually does apply to us. The primary motive for writing. Why does Paul pick up that pen? Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. You see, they're not all speaking the same thing, and that's one of the issues that Paul is going to address. You see, at the very beginning, he's saying, look, I have a design for you, a desire for you, that you would all speak the same thing, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. See, many of us take that scripture, and rightfully so, and use it as a statement of here's God's design for his church. You're exactly right. That is what his design is for the church. However, this is also a statement that is being used specifically to a singular church in history because that church didn't have the same mind. They had divisions amongst them. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So Paul has gotten word, Pastor Paul has heard, that there are contentions in and amongst the church at Corinth. Now, very likely, this, he was actually given a detailed list of the contentions because he addresses those throughout this letter. And so I could even break down the list for you, which will come out in, in very soon in this message. But there seems to be contentions. So those of Chloe's house come to Paul and say, Paul, we have a problem in Corinth. And Paul goes, Corinth again? Uh, yeah, I mean, these guys have contentions and divisions all over the place. So what are the contentions? Well, here's a at least a framework of it. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, most of us know this scripture. However, this is in light of what the contentions are. Paul is writing a letter, and it's that we have this splintering in the body, contentions and divisions, where people are saying, I'm of this mindset. Well, I'm of this mindset. And we're creating a denominational breakdown of the church. That's exactly what denominations are. They are a breakdown of uh, distinction to say, hey, I'm of, a, I'm of Paul. Is, is Paul's teaching, are they wrong? No. But actually, Paul is going to rebuke them for this very notion of denominationalism. What really matters? What is this Christian thing all about? So Paul, look what chapter we're in. We're in the very beginning of, uh, of the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul, immediately following this, and the fact that you are going after Paul, Apollos, Peter, all these other things, creating division, he says, we preach Christ crucified. Saying, look, you can talk all you want about what Paul teaches, and he's the one writing the letter, what pa- Paulus teaches, what Peter teaches, I'll tell you what we all preach. We all preach Christ. So if you're going to understand what we're about, we're not about this, 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 or this. We're about Christ crucified. Simple end of discussion. In fact, for those of you that have ever heard me talk on the very focal point of what Scripture is all about, I would say the North Star is Jesus and him crucified. You know where that comes from? In the upcoming sentences here in this very letter. Paul's very argument is saying, yay, guys! I'm encouraging you to be of one mind, one purpose, one spirit, one agenda. Do not be about what Apollos is saying or Paul is saying or Peter is saying, but what Christ has done, who he is. That's what we as the church unite around. 
So we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, this is a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You're going to boast? You boast in Jesus. You boast in the Lord. That's what we're about. That's what makes the church successful. Pastor Paul has his hands full with Corinth. And that's an understatement. Any, any one of you that has a pastoral background, I mean, if you ever had to deal with Corinth, whew. So let's look at some of the things that Pastor Paul is dealing with, okay? So this is a very quick assessment of the entire book of Corinthians and what Paul says. They are contentious and denominationally minded. They're making every peripheral doctrinal theme a dividing point while forgetting the doctrinal theme that is the most important. You see, what's interesting, and this is the great irony of 1 Corinthians, is most people in the modern church are creating divisions and denominations over specific statements in the book of 1 Corinthians, when in fact, that's the very reason Paul is writing the book, is to diffuse all of those. Is that an irony or what? Arrogant and puffed up. In fact, he goes out of his way to talk about this, that they are puffed up believers. They think they know everything. They're wise in their own eyes. They think they are immune to correction and are free to live out their Christianity any way they see fit. One of the key lines that they're going to have in Corinth is, hey, aren't I free in Christ Jesus? Aren't, I, aren't all things permissible to me? Can't I just do it the way I want to do it? You see, isn't that what Paul told us? Isn't that what the gospel teaches us? And Paul actually is going to say, you high-minded, arrogant, puffed-up individuals, when I come, I'm going to bring some discipline to you. And yet what they're saying is actually something many of us have said. In fact, where we got the quote was from 1 Corinthians. Hey, yeah, we're free in Christ. Everything's permissible to me. All things are lawful to me. That's what Paul says. Paul is literally addressing that very idea in the passage. Now, it's not that it's not true. It's that it's abused. And I'll go into this. Controlled by the flesh, they're babes. He says they're babes in Christ. They're carnal. They're carnal and controlled by self's passions for comfort, control, and recognition. Life to them is still about them. It's still about self. So even though they are in Christ, even though they've come to Christ, even though they're called the church at Corinth, they're a mess. Sexually immoral is one of the great problems they have in Corinth. They're exercising their quote-unquote liberty in Christ in a manner that feels good to them, though it may harm others. They're aggressively separating from all sinners the world over. This is such an interesting problem. You have on one side of Corinth, you have people that are sexually immoral. On the other side, you have the conservative uh, division of the Corinthian church that is saying, we must separate from all that are sexually immoral. So it's not just the sexually immoral in the church, but it's the sexually immoral in all the world. And so Paul is saying, hey, guys, I wrote wrote that to you in a previous letter, yes, but that wasn't what I was saying. If you were trying to separate from all the sexually immoral, you'd not even be in the world. There's a whole bunch of people in the world that don't even know Christ, and they'll never hear the gospel if you separate from everyone that is sexually immoral. So hyper-eagerness to please God out of distancing from all that is sexually immoral. Taking each other to court, allowing the secular world to make decisions in regard to the church. Eating food sacrificed to idols, enjoying liberty at the expense of another's conscience. Unwillingness to give up anything, their rights, their earthly pleasures, their possessions, and their control over their life. Refusing to cover the head properly, showing shocking disrespect and dishonor to their their God-given authority. 
handling communion with utter disregard to the preciousness and sacredness of it, diminishing the value of the shed blood of Jesus. Chaotic and disorderly in their use of spiritual gifts, out of control tongue-talking and prophesying. Women jumping ahead of the men, dishonor and disrespect undermining God's clearly appointed leadership. Audacious question of the resurrection. After all, that's pretty preposterous to think that people can rise from the dead. That's actually what they're saying. And so Paul has this massive list that he is addressing in, in 1 Corinthians. I mean, you want to take some of the most heightened issues in the modern church today, it's the same issues that they were dealing with in Corinth. And yet Paul is starting out by saying, hey, look, guys, we have contentions amongst us. This ought not to be. You should be of the same mind. Who is the center? What is this about? It's not about this division over here, this denominational perspective over here, or this issue over here. You're missing the whole thing. And so here we are, all these thousands of years later, with the same divisions, the same contentions, over the exact same things. Some helpful interpretation tools. So I'm going to give you a little toolkit for this as we go through. What is the context is going to be a very, very important question as we go through this. Uh, And by the way, this is very delicate for me to deal with because I could talk about any one of these issues and some of you could say, oh, you're ready to split the body right down the middle? Uh, If I start bringing up head coverings, if I start bringing up tongues, you guys know what could happen in a group like this. We're a blended body and we come from so many different spiritual heritages. These are hard things to deal with. Well, I feel for Pastor Paul because I'm Pastor Eric and I'm having to deal with the same things in our modern day. How do we address these things? So what is the context of what Paul is saying? That's going to be critical. Is this prescriptive or descriptive writing? Prescriptive writing is going to be telling you exactly what you should do, like a command. Do this. And it's to do this in every generation, in every situation. This is what you do. This is what the Bible tells you. Then there's also descriptive writing in the scriptures. In other words, when it says that Jesus went a day's journey, you know, to the Mount of Olives or to Bethany. Well, it doesn't mean you need to go a day's journey to the Mount of Olives or to, the, you know, to, to Bethany. It's, it's a description of what is taking place in Scripture. It does not mean it cannot have a prescriptive value. But what is this? When we deal with some of these issues, are we dealing with a prescriptive where Paul is saying, Hey, you, 2,000 years later, you need to do this. Or are we just hearing and watching something that's taking place? Well, that's a dangerous one because those that blame everything on culture and say, oh, well, that's just a cultural thing. It has no import on my life. It's all descriptive. Oftentimes miss how the scriptures work. That oftentimes they are prescriptively descriptive. In other words, where though the situation that Paul is describing doesn't affect us the same way. And I could give you plenty of illustrations. We could start with food sacrifice to idols. Food sacrifice to idols really has nothing to do with us in America. I had a couple that just got back from the mission field in Cambodia and said, well, you know, in Cambodia, present tense issue. The Christian church has to deal with food sacrifice to idols because they really do it. And you have to know what Paul is saying on that point. But here, we don't have that. However, it's prescriptively descriptive. So when you read the descriptive about what they were dealing with in Corinth way back then, there is still a prescription, but it needs to be applied in the spirit of what Paul is saying. Now, if I'm going to get myself in trouble, I would step right into the category of head coverings on that point and say, did you know that in that culture in which Paul was talking, it was completely a defiance and a dishonor to your head with a husband if the wife was not covered? And so if the wife is not covered, 
I tell you what, that is a statement. So the wife could say, I'm free in Christ Jesus to do whatever I want. And I don't want this thing. And so we had issues in the church at Corinth because it was only the prostitutes that walked around uncovered. So we could say in our culture today, in the general schematic of the American culture, head coverings mean nothing culturally. If someone has one on or they don't have one on, it doesn't mean it doesn't have any import to the husband, to the father. It doesn't mean anything. Now there's certain denominations within the church of Jesus Christ in this country where it does. And as a result, even though some may say, well, they, they took something that was just way back for then and they still apply it now, it still applies. Because in that denomination, in that sector, in that very church, it would be dishonoring to the head if the woman didn't have a covering. So these are difficult issues. So prescriptive or descriptive? What is Paul's great purpose in writing the letter? You see, if you don't know that, then you could easily come to the wrong conclusion about what Paul is attempting to accomplish in this. And so we'll go through all of these. The two ditches in the center line, just like most things in Christianity, there's extremes one way or the other. So there's a a narrow way, and few are those that seem to find it. And on either side is a ditch. Well, the same is true in 1 Corinthians. On one side, you have liberty. Some people could call it licentiousness, or a freedom to do whatever whim the soul of the flesh would long for, uh, and call it Christianity. And then you have the other side, which could be easily called legalism, or that which submits unto law or becomes basically an extension of Judaism. And so, ironically, both sides, both ditches in modern Christianity today find most of their support for their views out of the same book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians. Now, isn't that ironic? How in the world could we have such extremes in modern Christianity where the liberals could literally say, oh, that's my book, and then the super ultra hyper legalists over here could say, oh, great book, love that 1 Corinthians. How in the world could they like each other's book? You see, it has to do with how you approach it. And so the two ditches in the center line. Paul, in the entire book, is trying to create a center line. So let's start with the ditch on the left. Uh, Have you ever heard of liberals? Uh, Left is sort of the liberal direction. I don't know exactly who invented that as the direction, but left is uh, when you're starting to uh, go in the liberal side of things. And Liberty is a great word. By the way, there's nothing wrong with liberty, and I do not want it to be blandished in the way I'm communicating today because I'm a big fan of it. In a sense, you could say, just like in Galatians 5, it says, for freedom's sake, Christ set us free. The other word that could be easily transferred into that is for liberty's sake, Christ set us at liberty. Liberty is a very, very important word in the Christian landscape, and that is a freedom to do that which the law permits. In other words, within the spirit of the law of love, there is a tremendous liberty that we as Christians have to live without that impugning force of law upon us. In other words, yes, maybe it once was said that this had to be done, but there is now a liberty in Christ Jesus, but it is not a licentiousness to do what the flesh would crave. And that is one of the difficult balance points that we have in Christianity. So, liberty. I am free to do whatever I please. I'm a Christian. Now, that's a subtle twisting of a truth. However, this is a mentality that you will see that will come crescendoing forth out of the text of 1 Corinthians. And there are people on this earth, maybe even in this room, that would hold to this position, hey, Eric, don't put law on me. 
I'm a Christian. I'm at liberty in Christ Jesus. I can do that. I can watch that. I can drive whatever car I want. I can wear whatever kind of clothes I want, whether they're revealing or not, because I'm at liberty to eat whatever food I want, to live in whatever manner I want. I'm a Christian. And some of you could go, hey, you know what? Sounds right, but something's wrong. That's right. Something's wrong. And the same thing was wrong in Corinth. Paul was addressing that. And ironically, people still come to the conclusion out of Paul's writings in, to the Corinthian church that that's how they should live. All things, where do they get it from? Well, listen to this. All things are lawful unto me. All things are lawful for me. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? And then people are like, quote, unquote. I've got myself my baseline truth to live by. Look at Paul says everything's lawful for him. Well, he's the model Christian. All things are lawful for me. That means I am not under any other law, but basically the law of self-desire. And so whatever I feel like is okay because I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. Now, again, there's a truth in this. Paul's not just lying here. He is saying it, and all things are lawful for him. However, there's context to this too. Okay, the liberty ditch, just a little to the left. If you lean a little to the left in your life, you fall into a ditch. And in Christian history, it's called the Christian, well, it's not called this. In the Jewish history, it's called the Sadducee. So I'm going to call it the Christian Sadducee. The Sadducees were the liberals. There were two groups that killed and crucified Jesus. They were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Ironically, both of them had the truth, but the Sadducees went a little to the left, and they missed Jesus. The Pharisees went a little to the right, and they missed Jesus, and both crucified him. You see, when you miss the center, when you miss what Christ came to do, when you miss Christ crucified, you end up doing the opposite of the very thing you've set out to do, and that is you nullify the power of the Messiah. Law. Okay, so over here we had liberty. Over here we have law. And the other thing I don't want to do is I don't want to diminish the idea of law in your mind because of this message. We are not under law as we were in the Judean uh, covenant in the one we had in the first covenant. It's, it's a different orientation towards the law, but the law is still a revelation of the nature of God, of the, of the righteousness of God. There's nothing wrong with law. It's how we appropriate the law that's important. So law is on the other side. And if you end up erring on the side of law in your Christianity, you come under law again, it creates all sorts of havoc for the soul. So here's someone who's in the ditch on the right. I am required to not do this or do that wicked thing for my ability to show personal righteousness is proof of my genuine Christianity. I'm not going to argue. I'm going to say the same, you know, that the way we live is actually a demonstration to the heavenly realms, the manifold wisdom of God. We are to showcase the image of God in our behavior. However, how we do that doesn't come out of law, and it doesn't come out of this liberty over here. You see, Paul is going to strike a center, which is the whole point of his book. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. So where do the law guys uh, come from? Listen to this. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Flee fornication. I keep my body under and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Flee from idolatry. Can't you just hear it? Can't you hear the super conservatives? They're like, yeah, go, Paul, tell them. We are going to separate from all fornicators. We are going to flee idolatry. We're going to flee fornication. And you try it in your own strength. You attempt to get rid of all that sexually debased behavior in your life. You try and remove anything in your life that would all hint at you showing priority to anything other than Christ. Try it in your own strength. You'll fail. You see, when you go into this ditch, you have some good material in 1 Corinthians. Believe me, you have some great material. However, you will fail. 
because either side leads to disaster. Paul is coming to a church at Corinth, which is in a state of disaster and disrepair, and he cuts the center line, and he shows them what it's all about. The law ditch, a little to the right, and we'll call it the Christian Pharisee. So here's a center line. Now, for those of you, if you were going to say, what's the most famous scripture in all of 1 Corinthians? That's hard. It's debatable, of course. Maybe I should say it this way. What's the most famous chapter? It'd be 1 Corinthians 13. That's the one that's going to be most known. And you know that that's a pinnacle point. It's like a climax point in the story of what Paul is writing. He's building a case, and what does he build that case to? He's saying, liberty, law. He's saying, you guys got a problem. Love. You see, this idea actually is what solves the dilemma that we face in 1 Corinthians. We'll call it the missing ingredient, or ingredient in Corinth. And yet I show you a more excellent way. That's the final statement uh, in verse 28 of Paul's argument. He's leading up to it and he says, hey guys, I'm going to show you how this really works. And what's next? 1 Corinthians 13. So what I've done in 1 Corinthians 13, and sorry to do this, I probably should have read you the way it was, it is originally, but what I did is I took out all the great things that you can do, speak in the tongues of men and of angels, prophesy, because that's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with the schism points. He's like, hey, yeah, you can talk in tongues. Yeah, great stuff, guys. But if you don't have love, who cares? It's worth nothing. Yeah, you can prophesy, boy, you can bowl them over with that. But if you don't have love, you don't have anything. You could apply the same thing to everything. You could wear a head covering. You could not eat food sacrificed to idols. Good for you. But if you don't have what makes it all functional, it's worthless. That's his whole argument right there in a nutshell. So all of these debates on all these subtle points, Paul is saying, guys, do not miss it. Though I aggressively defend the doctrines of Peter, I put that little portion in, just so you could see it. But have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I vigorously argue on behalf of the conclusions of Apollos, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I animately champion the exhortations of Paul, but have not love, it profits me nothing. All the denominational idiosyncrasies, all, all the passion points that we can have doctrinally and theologically to say, but without this, I'm not saying that what you're saying is not right. You know that I would probably go out of my way to say what Paul and Peter and Apollos were saying was correct. However, what we see with Corinth is they actually were taking Paul's words incorrectly. When he said you need to separate from those that are fornicators, he meant in the church. In the church, judgment begins here and we must be wise now we handle the church, but not with everyone in the world that is involved in any sexual immoral behavior. Otherwise, we'd never be able to reach them with the gospel. He says, guys, you took my words and twisted them to your own end, and then you became law givers instead of grace givers. People, don't do this. You're meant to be love givers. When one says, I am of, Apo- I have, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Now, I read a previous version of this that was in chapter 1. Paul refers back to this issue of Paul, Apollos, and Peter over and over again throughout 1 Corinthians. He's saying, guys, you have contentions, you have divisions, you're taking sides on issues, but doesn't this demonstrate that you are carnal? That you are of the flesh? Isn't it showing you 
that you are actually absent of something. You're babes in Christ. You're not growing up because when you grow up, you show the nature of Christ in how you handle your doctrine. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. It's interesting how Paul is giving his argument. Now, that's a pretty confusing grammatical statement. But basically, he's saying, look, I'm holding this argument for you to see. I'm using myself and Apollos, Peter, as illustrations of men's conclusions on matters, our teaching. And I'm saying, do not puff up any denominational man conclusion above that which is written. The Bible always is higher than any denominationally minded conclusion that any men could gather together and come to. We all submit to that above all, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. The problem in Corinth, what was their problem? Well, let's bake it down. They made something other than Jesus Christ the focus. They made contentious doctrines their focus. And they argued about them all day long, splintered amongst themselves all day long because they made something other than Jesus and him crucified the center. And I, brethren, when I came to you, says Paul, right at the beginning of the second chapter after he lays his foundation of what he's writing for, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What did he say at the end of chapter one? We preach Christ crucified. He says, I came to you eliminating everything else that would be a distraction so that you would get the heart of it. It is not about this, 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 or this. It is about this. And you can't properly handle this, 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 and this unless you have this. It's not that we don't deal with food sacrifice to idols. It's that we need to know how to. You need the tool bag to properly deal with it. It's not that we don't deal with head coverings. It's not that we don't deal with disagreements in the church. It's not that we don't deal with tongues and prophecy and spiritual gifts. It's not that we ignore these things. It's that we must have that which is requisite so that we can properly deal with it the way Christ would deal with it. So remember how we had the liberty uh, Christian and then we had the law Christian? One went a little to the left, one went a little to the right. Well, now let's call it the love Christian, right down the middle. This is the one that stays on the path. You see, this is what pleases God. Faith expressing itself in love. You will know my disciples by one very specific quality, not their correct doctrine, but the love that is infused into it. That does not mean that God doesn't want us to be right or to be accurate with the word of God. It just means that if you are accurate without love, you have nothing. I would propose that we're accurate with love. That's just a great way to do it. So right down the middle, and we'll call this one the Christian Christian. In other words, yeah, call yourself a Christian all day long. Paul's saying, you want to know the Christian Christian? The one that's a Christian Christian? That's the one that loves. How could you not do that? That's the most basic elementary thing of Christ's nature. If he's in you, show him. Handle this properly the way he would. So look at what love does. When you stick love into these issues of liberty, do we have liberty in Christ? We do. Praise God, we do. 
Love harnesses liberty so that your liberty is used to love. Love fulfills the law. So is there still a high standard? You better believe it, there's a high standard. But you have that high standard without the love of God. And as a result, you will try and do it in your own strength. But you know what fulfills the law? Love does. So if you love, instead of focusing on trying to do this or this or this fine-tuned detail of your life, and you just love, you allow God to love through you, you fulfill the law in your behavior. Only that which flows out of the power of heavenly love is worth anything in the grand landscape of eternity. And that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. The anatomy of love. What is love? Oh, love is a hard thing to describe in a nutshell. The, the word in the Greek is agape. Uh, in, in the King James, it uses the word charity, which isn't a very common term for us, and it's not necessarily one that we oftentimes operate with. And then the modern translations use the word love. Love is a dangerous word because it has so many different types of meanings to it. We have love songs over here that are talking about fleshly indulgence and uh, sexual uh, promiscuity all the way over to the true idea of selflessness. Selflessness, God's nature of humble, selfless giving. When you love, you've forgotten you. You're more concerned about the other person than you are you. If you love them well, you are willing to experience difficulty, pain, and loss to see them gain. You see, parents begin to acquaint themselves with a introductory version of this type of love when they have a baby. And you begin to realize, it's like, I really do want my baby to be healthy. I'm willing to stay up all night. And you begin to do things that you would have never done. Now, you might complain and grumble about it the whole time uh, as you're up in the middle of the night and you're going, this crazy baby needs to sleep. However, you find yourself willing to sacrifice, willing to go to great lengths to help this child survive and to thrive. Well, that's a foretaste. God is giving us an idea, something, because this is his entire nature. And yet, he doesn't grumble. He delights in it. What's amazing is he will gladly give up and self-sacrifice and experience great pain and loss to ensure that you live. In fact, this is what he has done. That's what the cross is. And this is what Paul preached. Paul preached Jesus and his selfless love, his givenness for you to live. You see, Paul preached the message of the cross, which is love. It is the givenness, the selfless nature of God Almighty himself to come down and to give us what we need to live. How could you miss that, people? I mean, you're talking about all these other things. What about that? You ready to get back to the cross? Because that's the centerpiece. If you want to preach the cross, you better be loving. You better show it in your life. And so the anatomy of love, God's nature of humble, selfless giving. So I have a new term for how we go about making decisions. Like say let's, we have the issue of food sacrifice to idols. And so we get together and say we're a congregational government. We're all going to vote of how we're going to handle this as a church. And so the issue is food sacrifice to idols in the American culture. So how are we going to do this, guys? Well, the first thing I want to say as a pastor is I'm going to say, I don't want you just to reason through it uh, based on the facts and the details. I want you to start with the premise of what matters most. And that is how we handle this issue needs to show the love of Jesus. That's primary. Because we could make the right decision how we handle this food sacrifice to idols. And we could say, I'm free to eat it. Or we could say, we should never touch food sacrifice to idols. We don't know where that food's been. You could be liberty or you could be uh, law. But you must be love. And love, in certain situations, feels at complete ease to just eat 
that food. Doesn't care a whit about the fact that it was sacrificed to idols because this was made by God. It's for God. This is unto God. My attitude is for him. You're free to do it. Paul even says it that way. However, if you know that there's someone in your congregation whose conscience would be stumbled over the fact, they have a weak conscience, and they would be stumbled over the fact that you would eat that food sacrificed to idols, and it might cause them to eat it even though it would violate their conscience, and you would stumble your brother, Paul says, I would gladly go without eating meat for the rest of my life till the world ends, if necessary, for the sake of my brother. He says, that's love. You see, it's not because of a law that says you can't, and it's not based on the fact that, oh, no matter what it is, I can. It's saying, what would love my brother in this situation? How will you know the disciples of Jesus Christ? By their love for one another. So we're going to call this self-denied decision-making. So you're going to be making decisions with self already denied. So you're not going to be thinking from your vantage point of how this prospers you, how this benefits you. You're now going to say, you know what? How does this bring glory to God? How does this help my brother or my sister in the Lord? So I'm going to think that way. So let's look at our list. Sexual immorality. What's love in this situation? Well, sexual immorality. Well, I have taught on that for years. What's love in this situation? What would truly honor uh, the other person? In, in the situation? What would honor their future marriage? What would honor your future marriage? You know, when you begin to think out of a love grid, sexual immorality just disappears. Like if you're married and you're going to ask the question, instead of looking at pornography, you're going to ask the question, hmm, what would love be in this situation? You would say, well, I'd want to honor my future spouse. And of course, this voice over here of liberty could say, you can do whatever you want. Don't you remember what Paul said? Everything is permissible. God created the human body. I mean, don't you think he wants you to desire it? Don't you think he wants you to be attracted to it? And then the other side, never come near it. And then in the middle, you say, I'm not under law, and I'm not going to be licentious. I'm going to love. I'm going to love my spouse by saying, no. I want to honor my spouse with every thought, with my inner life, with the way I handle. So if they were watching me, they would feel honored with everything I do. It's a loving decision. It's not a legal decision, and it's not a licentious decision. It's a love decision. Food sacrifice to idols. What's love in this situation? Love in this situation, as I just described, would gladly and willingly give up eating meat for the rest of eternity, if necessary, if it would cause one person to stumble. And yet some of you on the, on the liberty side could say, hey, I have freedom to eat meat. I'm under the new covenant. I'm under grace. Well, actually, you're under love. You're under love because over here, if, if your behavior were to slip to the other side and say, no, we should never eat food sacrificed to idols, what you do is you begin to think that your righteousness flows out of what you don't do or you do do, when in actuality, your righteousness flows out of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Your job now is to love, to love as he loves. Head coverings. What's love in this situation? Gulp. Should I just skip that one? Would that be a little easier? This is a hotbed. I I get emails that say, if Eric really believes the word of God is the word of God, then why uh, doesn't he teach a strong stance on head coverings? You know that I actually know what they're saying when they say that. What does it say in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11? You know, I'd say it's, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Well, then start studying it. It's actually sort of complicated. Because it's in a context, and the context is that this issue is creating a disturbance in the church. The very context of head coverings is we have a problem in Corinth. We have contentions and we have divisions. What do we have? We have people that are stouts and, you know, saying, you have to keep wearing the head covering. Then you have the opposite side saying, we're free in Christ Jesus. Whip this puppy off. Okay, now what we have is we have an issue that is foreign 
to the American culture. And this is where the prescriptive and descriptive comes in. Because to be honest, in our culture, if you look at what Paul is saying, he says, isn't it of the nature of things that you know that if a woman is uncovered, it is a shame to her? And we're like, no, it isn't. It isn't natural to us. It is not part of our culture. In, in Japan, they burp after a meal. And guess what? In our culture, that would be deemed rude. And so if I said to you, should we burp after meals or not? Some of you could say, I have freedom to burp after a meal. Some of you could say, actually, it's against uh, Emily Post's etiquette. It is completely wrong and we should never do it. Never burp, which would be more of my line of thinking in my home. Okay? However, the key is love. So the question would be, what would love be in this situation? The meal is over and you just happen to be lounging in Japan. It was a good meal, and you want to show honor to the cook. So you could say, thank you for that great meal. And then the, the lady leans in, and she goes, and? And you're like, oh, dear God, I can't do this. And so you've never burped in your life. But you're sort of like, how do you do it? And in that situation, did you know that that would be love? You know that I've had husbands say to me that if my wife, to show honor for me, I actually would prefer her not to wear a head covering, and that would be honor. So imagine where the woman is at in that situation, because the spirit of that text would say, as a form of honoring your head. Now, of course, some of you could say, yeah, and also protection from the angels. Good luck trying to teach on that one. That is one of the hardest things, one of the most confusing things. And by the way, that text is not easy. And isn't hair given to a woman as a covering? So aren't they already covered? You follow me? And uh, we have no such practice in the church of Jesus Christ. What? Now, I am, I'm not going to ever default to any of these classic arguments. See, that's, that's why I ignore 1 Corinthians 11. I think we embrace 1 Corinthians 11, but we embrace it in context. And here's what I'd say. If you take it as a descriptive, I'm sorry, as a prescriptive, you, in accordance with your conscience, must, and you need to wear a head covering. If it is prescriptive to you, however, if you take it as a descriptive with a prescriptive teaching in it, in other words, yes, head coverings isn't a normal thing any more than food sacrifice to idols is a normal thing in our culture, but you in your conscience recognize that the issue is love in this, and you want to love. So if you are the woman in this situation, you want to say, how can I honor my husband? How can I honor Jesus Christ? How can I live in submission to honor and to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God unto the heavenlies. That is what I'm going to primarily support is the spiritual impetus of love in this. So if you wear a head covering, you'll get my defense. If by good conscience and by study of this, you feel that freedom to say, I believe it's descriptive to me with a prescriptive teaching in it, you would have my support as well. There are other things I'm not going to have two sides on. In other words, I would say, hey, guys, we don't mess with that. But in certain situations in our culture, these are extremely delicate and difficult issues. And I could go into a lot more illustrations. For instance, if you're in a home where head coverings are worn, then your handling of it is going to be very different than if you were growing up in a completely different side of uh, America where head coverings are unheard of. Does that make sense? And so as a result, your situation plays into it as well. Communion. What's love in this situation? These people were coming, and they were coming hungry, and so they were eating, and they were showing a disregard and a disrespect to each other, and they were showing a disregard and a disrespect to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, hey, guys, you may have liberty, but I'm not going to just put you under law. You need to know what you're doing. You need to recognize this is an issue of love for the brethren. So before you come to have communion, make sure you eat before you come. Let's not lead people to stumble 
You see, what was happening in Corinthians, they were just out of control and everything they were doing was tripping people. So when you have liberty, you whip off the head cover and you start speaking in tongues everywhere you go, start prophesying in a disorderly manner. Paul's saying, hey, guys. Yet he's not just talking about head coverings and tongues and prophecy. That's not his big agenda. Those were the issues that he was addressing. So let's make sure we remember the context and remember his conclusion. Let's remember what he is prescribing. He's prescribing love. That's the primary. If you miss that, you miss the whole kitten caboodle. Tongues. What's love in this situation? Some of you would go, I know what's love. You don't do it. And yet some of you go, hey, hey, I heard that. I heard you thinking out loud. And you'd say, that's what Paul did. Paul spoke in tongues more than any. Obviously, it's something we should be doing. You see how this can splinter the body? But what is Paul saying in the context? He's saying, guys, you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if you have not love, it's nothing. Let's not miss that. The primary chief fruit of Christianity and the evidence of a new birth is not tongues, it's love. It's the nature of Christ revealed. You will know my disciples by the fact that they speak in tongues? No. I know I just took on one entire denomination when I said that. You will know my disciples by love for one another. That's how you will recognize the genuine article. Prophecy. Oh, great. What's love in this situation? It needs to be orderly. If you have something that God has burdened you with, don't just blast onto your feet and start talking over someone else. You see... The entire thing isn't just on prophecy, it's on order and respect and love. The context between, ironically, we have these people that wear head coverings over here in 1 Corinthians 11, and we have these people that tongue talk over here in 1 Corinthians 14. What's smack in the middle? 1 Corinthians 13, love. The thing that brings it all together sort of gets forgotten in the whole landscape. Order in the church, What's love in this situation? You show deference, you show respect, you show honor to everyone else around you as if they're more important than you. <laughs> Women speaking, what's love in this situation? I tell you what, I've spent a lot of time, I'm a conservative, so I naturally am gonna start with the premise, God said it, that's just what it is. That's how I even start in 1 Corinthians 11 when it talks about head coverings. I'll start with the premise, whatever is the clearest is where I'm gonna start. Now I'm gonna understand what is Paul trying to say? in this situation. How I'm going to start with whatever's clear. When, it, when you start looking at what is clear, it's like, women, hey, you guys shouldn't be talking. So this is a very hard thing. But like I said, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when a woman prophesies. Well, I don't know about you, but last time I understood prophecy, it had to do with using your tongue to speak. So when a woman prophesies, and I don't allow any women to speak in the church, what, what's she talking about? Well, I'm not, I don't have time to go into this in any great level. However, what I want you to recognize is what Paul's theme is. Paul's theme is love. Paul is saying we have disorder in the church, and when proper order comes and women respect how the church is supposed to be running, we will thrive. But when women jump ahead of the men, start pushing them out of the way and saying, we'll control this body, then we have chaos. When men take a proper position in the church, things work. You know, just, just to clarify, as far as the overall Bible, you'd interpret a word inside of a sentence, a sentence inside of a, a, a paragraph, a paragraph inside of a, a chapter, a chapter inside of a book, and the, that book in, in, in light of the entire Bible. 
Eve was the first one to, bring a car- to be a carrier of doctrine unto Adam outside of the word of God. You know that God, when he rose again from the dead, when Christ rose again from the dead, he appeared to someone. Do you remember who he appeared to? He appeared to women. Serpent appeared to a woman. Jesus appears to women. And what does he tell them to do? Get this. Go tell the disciples. You know, the first harbingers, the first carriers of the gospel, the first ones commissioned to go and share were women. God is rectifying something. So I don't want us to come under the Eve condemnation in the new covenant. I want us to understand the freedom and the liberty that there is in Christ. However, for those women in here that are of the women's lib movement that are like, hey, I'm free in Christ. There's no distinction between male and female. I can say whatever I want. Just be watchful of the attitude behind it. Any more than the men that are like, shut up. (laughs) Both sides lead to a quagmire and a destructive nature entering the church. And I would say what needs to harness us, both male and female, is love. And when love leads the way, suddenly we can handle these issues with great dexterity. How does culture play into this discussion? Well, I probably have already covered it. When you're dealing with ancient Corinth, you're dealing with a culture that is very different than ours. Did you know that if you're in the Middle East right now, the issues of food sacrifice to idols, maybe or the issues of head coverings, actually are modern day, present tense issues, and these scriptures make a lot more sense. However, when you're in America in the modern day, it's like being in Japan after a meal. How you handle it might not look textually exactly like it says in Corinth, but the spirit of it that you are to walk out is love. And we have to address these things all the time. When I'm dealing with varying denominations, I'm constantly asking the question to myself before I enter a situation, what would lead people to life as opposed to just kicking their doctrine or challenging their theological perspective on that one? How can I lead them to Jesus and him crucified? That's my desire. It's not to say you're wrong and I'm right, or you know we need to have more liberty, or you need to come under law, or whatever it is. We have tendencies in the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm saying, I don't want to lead you to licentiousness, and I don't want you to lead you back to Judaism. I want you to lead you in new covenant living, which is love living. It's Christian Christianity. It's the way it's supposed to be. And at the same time, that isn't to lessen the fact that we are liberated and free in Christ. I do not want you to come under any legal code that God is not placing upon you. And at the same time, I don't want there to be such an overreaction to the licentiousness in our culture that we return to Judaism. I want us to cut the middle. And I want us to love. I want us to know when to flee idolatry, when to flee fornication and when to eat the food sacrificed to idols in good conscience. Oh, how does this work? Well, Pastor Paul had to walk through it back then. I say the same spirit that helped Paul write 1 Corinthians, even though it stumbles a lot of people, that same spirit can help us understand how to live the same way today. The all-important attitude. So let's look at Philippians, because Philippians 2 is actually saying the exact same thing that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Boom, I just gave you the machinery of Christianity right there. That's how it works. 
And then it goes on to say the model of Jesus Christ, who lived this. Jesus and him crucified, right there. That's what it leads to. That's what it helps us understand. This is how you are to live. Even Christ condescended to take the lowest place and he considered himself a servant. He was obedient even unto death. You could say, isn't he liberated? Can't he just do whatever he wants? He's God. He's God submitted. He's God submitted in a love relationship to a father. And whatever the father would ask, whatever would glorify the father, whatever would help those around him that the father loved, he would gladly do. That's Christianity. Christianity isn't just dotting a whole bunch of I's and crossing a whole bunch of T's doctrinally. It's living love. But in such a way that doesn't contradict the word of God. In other words, where God is clear, you walk clear. But you do it not under law and not with such an extreme. You say, I don't care what it says in scripture. I'll do whatever I want. But you're harnessed. Your liberty is harnessed and the law is fulfilled because you love well. Liberty leveraged lovingly. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. Look what book we're in. We're in 1 Corinthians. Paul is beginning to articulate. uh, He's trying to make his way through the challenge that he is facing in Corinth. He's saying, look, guys, you have liberty. He doesn't cancel that out. He doesn't say, no, you don't have liberty. He's saying, take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a problem or a stumbling block to others that are weak. But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, what do you do? You sin against Christ. So do you know that that, what Paul is saying is, yes, you have liberty in Christ, but if you misuse your liberty, do you know that you're in sin? And someone could say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm not in sin. I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, nope. If the way you're handling your liberty is actually violating the body of Christ around you, then in actuality, you are sinning. You're transgressing the very nature of God, which is love. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, or if me eating meat would cause my, the bro- my brother's soul to be tripped, I will eat no meat while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. This is liberty. Paul has liberty to eat meat. He even says that. He says, no, I, I can eat meat. It doesn't bother me. I'm not doing this for my own conscience. I'm doing it for theirs. If I realize that my behavior will trip someone else, I won't have that behavior. I won't do that. 1 Corinthians 9, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Uh-oh. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? For though I be free from all men, listen to this, for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all. Now, Paul, what are you doing? I thought you had liberty in Christ. Don't make yourself a servant. He makes himself a bondservant unto Jesus Christ, and get this, and a servant unto everyone around him. Let's keep reading. That I might gain the more, and unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain, the, gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law as without the law. Being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. Jesus became as us to gain us. This is the Jesus model. What does Paul preach? Jesus and him crucified. This is what he came to show. He came to show the willingness to take the lowest place to serve. Paul has a desire to gain those which Jesus Christ has pursued and purchased with his blood. So listen to this. I, made, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And finally, 1 Corinthians 10. 
But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it. So someone says, yeah, and I just want to give you this nice platter of food. Uh, just know that it was sacrificed uh, to idols before I gave it to you. Oh, this is a sticky situation. What are you supposed to do in that situation? He says, eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscience sake. So eat it not? Is it because I'm under law and I should never eat food sacrificed to idols? He says, no, for that person that gave it to you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now listen to this. Conscience, I say, not thine own. You see, your conscience is free to eat this. However, you are going to not eat it for their sake. So he says, conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense. Do not ever trip a brother. Your job is to take the lowest place and to serve everyone around you. Neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. The all-important ingredient, if you haven't figured this out, I'll give it to you afresh. It's love. What does it say about love? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Now, when you read 1 Corinthians, you'll begin to realize why Paul is putting this particular list together. Did you know that everything he addresses in his arguments are showing that this is the opposite of the way the Corinthian church is behaving? That's what's interesting about this list. What the Corinthians are doing is not love. They are not being patient and kind with each other. They are, not, they are envying and boasting, but they're boasting about the wrong things. They're all puffed up. Remember that? It is not arrogant or rude. Everything the Corinthian church is doing is not love. Guys, what is wrong with you? Are you babes in Christ? Are you not carnal? Is this not fleshly behavior? This isn't the evidence of what Jesus Christ came to do for you. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. For instance, even that one, you have these people that are sinning immoral, you know, they have sexual immorality in their life and they're bragging about it, saying they're free in Christ to do it. And what does he say? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. What are you guys doing? That's not love. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Jojo and the fancy shoes. So I'm going through uh, Crossing a Switchblade with Hudson right now, just to fantastic book. I, I love that book. Uh, so David Wilkerson is in the, this is, what, 60s? I think it's the early 60s. And so he's, he's ministering the gangs uh, in New York City. And he comes across a gang leader. I forgot which gang he was over, but he was a gang leader. And this gang leader lived on a park bench. That's where he lived. Didn't have a home. And so uh, when it rained, I think, I forgot where he said he went, but he went under some kind of covering, and that was his other home that he went to. But the guy had never had a pair of normal shoes in his life. And it had always been things he'd found and, and everything. But this is a gang leader, so he's a tough character. And when David Wilkerson comes up to him, uh, Jojo spits on him and walks away. And David Wilkerson pursues him. David Wilkerson is wearing uh, a bright, spanking new pair of shoes. And they're looking really good and shiny. And so he sits down at, uh, on Jojo's bench next to him. And he says, Jojo, where do you live? 
says, you're sitting in my home. And so he's talking, and he says, hey, preacher, look. You have everything. You're a rich man. I don't have anything. I don't relate to you. I don't understand your world. You have shoes. I've never had a pair of shoes. And so what does David Wilkerson do? He realizes that what he's doing is he's creating an impediment between him and Jojo. And he realizes it's the shoes. You see, remember what Paul says? Basically the equivalent of I'm willing to go barefoot like Jojo to reach Jojo. And so David Wilkerson takes off his shoes and says, here, talking so much about my shoes, take them. It's like, what's the gig? What's the game you're playing with me, preacher? He says, there's no game. I'm just giving you my shoes. You seem to really want them. Here you go. Try them on. He tries them on. They fit. And so then David Wilkerson just gets up in his socks and starts walking off. And Jojo comes after him and says, here's your shoes. He says, no, I gave them to you. They're yours. And then he turns around and says, Jojo, where are you sleeping tonight? It's a park bench. He says, come with me. I'm staying in a place that might have an extra bunk. And he did. The story's great. It's a great story. And Jojo is one for Christ. But David Wilkerson had to remove the impediment that stood between him. Is it good to have shoes on? Is there anything wrong with shoes? I have liberty to wear shoes. But if your liberty to wear shoes trips up Jojo, are you willing to take them off? Do you follow me? There's nothing wrong with wearing shoes. I think it'd be ridiculous if some of you started a denomination over the fact that we should never wear shoes just because of that story. <laughs> However, if we had the opposite, which says you can never wear shoes or that you should always wear shoes, do you know that we're going to strangulate the very truth that is coming out of that story? You see, it isn't about shoes. It's about love. Do you understand? If the issue was shoes back in Corinth, we'd be dividing over shoes, and half of this body would not wear shoes. You see, we are strangulating the very essence of what the Bible is attempting to communicate. There's nothing wrong with the specifics that are given. It doesn't mean we shouldn't heed them. They matter. But let's not miss the global message that Paul is bringing. My movies and the pastor. So Leslie and I had a friend, a pastor and his wife, and we had a certain tradition. You see, we were always laboring hard for the gospel, and so we would get together with them and watch a movie. In fact, we were strangely interested in this one movie producer that would always sort of have an Alfred Hitchcock-like twist at the end, and so we would spend hours, you know, because I was always talking about Christianity, with other people. So we'd talk about movies together. And so we would talk about how it could have been done better. And he'd be like, oh, he blew it on that one. I'm like, I thought it was brilliant. And we'd argue about it. I mean, we'd debate and have schisms over how the movie was put together. Absolutely ridiculous. I realize that. If you know Eric Ludi now, you're like, what is your problem, Eric? Yeah, it is. It's ridiculous. And here's the fascinating thing. Leslie and I were being pricked by the Holy Spirit in regards to how much time we were spending watching movies and turning to that instead of the consoling, comforting presence of God, and turning to prayer. I didn't like that conviction, because I had liberty in Christ, and I wasn't going to come under law. I wasn't going to do that. And so, hey, God, I, I need to understand what I'm supposed to do here, because I don't want to just say no movies, you know, because there's nothing wrong, is there? I mean, this is a Corinth issue. It's precisely what it is. And so less than I really felt that to actually turn to these movies was impeding our relationship with God. And not because of law, but out of love, we decided to walk away from it for a season and use that same time to pray. Now, I'm not trying to create some conviction. That's not my point here. What I'm going to say is this pastoral couple came over, and they were sitting in our living room, and I was really wanting to talk about a movie, but uh, I was going to change this pattern because I don't want my mind to go there. And so I actually was making the statement that the Holy Spirit had been convicting us about movies. 
And this is what the pastor and his wife said. Eric, do you know why we watch movies? No, why? Because you and Leslie do. We felt the same thing, but we've oftentimes justified it because you guys do. Do you find what I'm saying? In other words, movies might not be your problem. They, you might have liberty to watch a movie. Now, there's certain movies I would say you shouldn't have a liberty to watch. And you could say, what? That sounds contradictory. No, because it is of the flesh and it is carnal and it debases the nature of Jesus Christ. Don't mess with that stuff. Don't stick it in your mind. However, the concept of 35 millimeter film is not your issue. That isn't the problem. It's the fact that it may be stumbling your soul and hindering your development with Christ or stumbling someone else. And if I find out that my watching of movies would stumble you, guess what? Am I willing to give up movies till the world ends to make sure I don't stumble your soul? Now, some of you just got very depressed uh, when I said that. However, I am giving you the gospel. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we preach, and that's the message. Love! Willingness to give up everything that someone else would succeed. Whatever it takes, we will take the lowest place and become a servant to all men. Love-infused living. The car I drive. If the car I drive trips someone else, am I willing to drive a different car? I remember having the same discussion as a follow-up with this pastor, because both of us were very much against uh, minivans. And <laughs> I think he had a Hummer at the time, too. Uh, I've never had a Hummer. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and we were talking about this, and he went out and bought a minivan. <laughs> and in other words, just to say, I don't want to trip those around me, other Christians, as a pastor. And so he said, I, I'm willing to have a minivan. For him, that was a huge statement. The food I eat. If the food you eat, you may have liberty, but if the food you eat is of a nature that actually trips other people around you, and that could be even the healthy stuff where it literally makes other people feel like, oh, the only way to be right with God is to eat the healthy stuff. It could be the other stuff, the real junky stuff. And you're eating either or, and as a result, it may create a stumble for other people. All I'm saying to you is it doesn't have to do with what you're eating. It has to do with how you're eating it, why you're eating, what the motive of your life is. Are you willing to consider these things so that you can love those around you? The clothes I wear. You know that there's certain clothes that actually show disrespect to the world around you? The way we live our life is meant to be loving. It's not to come under either law or to say, hey, I can wear whatever I want. It's to say, I want to do whatever I do, whether it's eating or drinking, whether it's wearing clothes, driving cars, whatever it is, I want to do it all for the glory of God. The things I watch, the music I listen to, the way I spend my time. If the world is to watch your life, would you be leading them closer to Jesus, closer to a clearer perception of Jesus, or would you be leading them either to a licentious life of the flesh or to a legal life of the flesh? Will they see love in your life? Love is the most excellent way. I'm just breaking it down for you can see it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, dot, dot, dot. Uh, unfortunately, I've already given it away, so you're way on top of this one. But by this, now many of us could fill in the blanks, because if you're following Paul, Apollos, Peter, you have your fill in the blank. By this you will know that we are disciples, you know all the writings of Calvin. 
You know the five points of Joseph Arminius. You know the eschatological viewpoint of her, 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 her. You hold to the, this one denominational camp and their views on the Holy Spirit. Will we be known as disciples of Jesus Christ by any of those things? What does Jesus himself say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. That is the defining attribute. And Paul is bringing us back to the center in the book of 1 Corinthians. And ironically, the very book that is being used by God to show us the center line is the very one in our modern Christian culture that is being leveraged to create schisms and denominational faction. I don't know if you see the irony, but it, I mean, if it was a laughing matter, we should laugh. Jesus and him crucified, the message that answers every dispute. When you preach, I don't want you to preach side doctrines. I want you to preach the center. I want you to preach that which Christ has accomplished and that which Christ is. The one who has come to save, the one who can rescue you, the one who can transform your life has done it. And when you preach it, you preach it with love. And you're willing to take the lowest place and become a servant of all men that they would hear that message. So don't just break up into schisms and factions and denominations. Let's work together as a body to love a dying world. I want us to practice this week in our marriages, with our children, with our roommates, and with each other. This is our practice ground. God gives, he doesn't just call us to be hermits in a, some monastic existence. He calls us to be marked by love. And so as a result, let's go forth and do precisely what God has asked us to do. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.